This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Hello out there. It is I, Chris Bolton, your creative agency Sherpa, soothsayer, and detective all wrapped into one. I'm really excited about today's interview. I have Rick Webb, author of Agency, starting a creative firm in the age of digital marketing. This book is really a must read if you own or work for a creative agency. Be sure to follow the link in the show notes and pick up a copy. Rick is a really great interview and he offers some really insightful info about growing an agency, so don't miss this one. Also, if you like the show, please leave me a review in iTunes. If you have questions or comments, you can also leave those on any episode on our website, creativeagencypodcast.com. Now let's get to the interview. All right. Well, today I'm very excited to have Rick Webb, author of Agency, starting a creative firm in the age of digital marketing and founder of the Barbarian Group. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Good to have you. Me. Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad to have you. And this is actually the second time because um, the first time we tried to do this interview, I accidentally forgot to hit record. And uh, my my fellow employees have decided to remind me by putting a sign in the window of the conference room that says press record. So (laughs) we're definitely going to record it this time. It's like uh, uh, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt startup, hit record. (laughs) Yeah. So I love your book, and um, I recommend everyone reading it. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's fantastic, and I actually bought it twice because I lost my first copy. Um, At the beginning of your book, you you talk about how you wish there had been a guidebook available when you started your agency. You said you sort of had to wing it. And I've actually felt that pain myself because in starting our agency, Murmur Creative, um, I had trouble finding other resources out there. And that's why I started this podcast. And I've scoured Amazon looking for other books on, you know, running a digital agency. And there really isn't that much out there. And I think we're really fortunate that you wrote your book, which is so high quality. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, there really seems to be like two times of books. There's like a lot of sort of small business starting a graphic design shop books. And then there's like a lot of, you know, stories from the battles at big agencies kind of books. But they're, yeah, definitely that seemed to be something missing in the middle. That's awesome. Well, I'd like to start out by talking a little bit about your agency, the Barbarian Group that you founded. Um, And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about bootstrapping and culture and your approach to timekeeping and some other good stuff. Um, So the Barbarian Group was a pretty significantly sized agency. On the Barbarian website, it says you work with Pepsi and Google and Intel and GE. How many employees did uh, the Barbarian Group have while while you were working there? Yeah, so I mean, I worked there. We started the company in late 2001. And uh, just to give you a little overview, we sold it to a holding company in 2009. And I left at the end of 2011. So I was there just about a decade. And in that time, we went from the four founders to about 150 people when I left. Wow. Would you say that there are many agencies that size? I think we broke through at that point. There are still a lot. I mean, there's one thing I've learned after writing this book is there's far more agencies in general than anybody's aware of. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think in my travels and talking to people, I see a lot in the 30 to 60, 75 range. Mm-hmm. And um, there's definitely fewer when you break 100. You know, there's 
it's probably sort of a smaller number. Yeah, I don't know if there are any any of that size here in Portland, Oregon. There may be. I will probably widen in Kennedy. Yeah, right. Perfect example. You got widen. You got the big ones. I think there might be one or two in the middle. But then I, you know, even I know of several smaller shops in the ten to fifty people range. Uh, what was, so what was your annual revenue before you sold your company? Mm, well, I think by the end it would have been in the 10 to 20 million range. It had to be mm-hmm. more than significantly more than 10 because I remember payroll being about a million dollars a month at the end. Wow. So I have, you know, 15, 20 maybe. And how much did you sell it for? Uh, well, you know, all these agencies, one of the things I really talk about in the book is that there isn't, it's all pretty much a multiple on revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody, when you talk to bankers and things like that, they always go on about EBITDA and profit, but we all kind of do the same work and we all kind of hire the same people and pay them about the same amount and price their jobs about the same. So it tends to be everybody's got kind of the same margins. Mm-hmm. So companies typically go for, you know, one to twice revenue is the rule of thumb I sort of advocate in the book. And that was what we did, you know. One to twice. So either how much you make in a year or how much you make over yeah, two year. years. Yeah, you know, then you get all these questions about is it the last 12 months? Is it forward looking? Is it the last quarter multiplied by four? There's different, you know, ways to do it, especially if you're growing fast. But, you know, it's in that range. So how much did like an average, average project cost um, sort of at the height of your business? Well, you know, I would say after the first two or three years, we settled really nicely into an area where, you know, this was, you know, the early 2000s and things were predominantly flash mini sites or little games, things like that. There wasn't any mobile development yet. We weren't, there wasn't any software development yet or video production, and we hadn't really broken on through to be someone's agency of record, right? So projects kind of ranged from like 50 to 300,000 for a lot of years. Uh-huh. And then the last few years, we did kind of break through that, and we started becoming like the agency of record for people or doing like full annualized web development jobs and things like that. And then you started getting into jobs that were over a million, two million a year. You know, once you own a website, a big corporate website for a brand, and they've got like a team that's dedicated that they're, that's always working on it in some iterative or agile way, you know, you start, it starts being a, not so much a project as like an ongoing relationship. Gotcha. An agency of record just basically means you're the main agency? Yeah. I mean, you know, that term is a little fuzzy and kind of losing meaning as the the years go by. But if you've got some sort of like official ongoing relationship or for some aspect of their business, be it the social or the 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 website or something like that, you know what I mean? And so for, for a project, how many people would usually end up working on an average project? I guess that's kind of a broad question but yeah you know i mean it gets harder to answer that as the years went by right so there's sort of these different stages to growth of these companies i think you know everybody sort of starts out these days because they were good at what they did right and i talk a lot about that in the book in the old days agencies kind of started like madman style and you were already working at an ad agency and you had a account person and a creative person and a copywriter and you all left and you did your jobs and you took an account with you. It's not really like that anymore, right? A lot of these companies are started by freelancers. They might be designers or engineers or UX people or writers or something. And then they get more and more work that they, that they want to do. So they start hiring people and growing and then they hit, you know, that's kind of the first inflection point is when you get beyond yourself And then I think there's often another inflection point in the 20 to 40 people range where you start to 
take on different types of work, right? Mm-hmm. Like you might have a client that you've been doing graphic design for for years, but they just would love to give you all the back end too. And they don't want to have the hassle of dealing with two different shops and the work's just sitting there. So you start hiring a developer or two or vice versa. And so then you're sort of offering like different types of work. And then after that goes on for a while, you might start taking pure development work or pure design work or jobs that do both. So the, it's kind of the longer you've been in business and the more you grow, like the, the, the notion of like an average job sort of falls away, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely realized that at least here at our agency, we've projects have been sort of accumulating the number of people in things as we sort of separate out the different roles. It's like, oh, now we have a strategist and now we have a UI UX person. Now we have a designer. And it's sort of like in the beginning, it was just we had a designer and developer in that right, exactly. the project. <laughs> you know, at the beginning we did, we sort of specialized in database driven flash sites. So like a lot of games, a lot of like, you know, Nike sites, e-commerce, things like that. So I, I would say our core like skills of the early years were design, creative driven design and backend. And then, you know, we expanded into strategy and user experience. And then like Facebook came along and we started doing more, you know, social, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then we had a whole planning department and then you get like, we expanded in as, with YouTube coming along and video production. So by the end, I mean, we we're doing so many different skills that every client kind of had a different combination of them they were using, you know? So something at the end where we owned like the whole interactive sort of capabilities for somebody, like we did a, like pretty much everything for Kashi, the serial company and you know, like I would say maybe 70% of GE's digital stuff. At that point, you've got these very large teams, right? One or two designers, a UX person, a strategist, one to four developers. Maybe you're doing some video production and you've got some sort of base contract for, you know, you've got your producer, maybe a writer, and then you've got a base contract for the year that pays for that team each month. And maybe that's in the one or $200,000 range. And then throughout the year, there's add-ons like you need to do a photo shoot or a video and, you know, and then there's these little projects that add on that could range anywhere from 50 to 150,000. So, but you know, in the years, sort of the middle years, when we were just doing mini sites and small sites and games, a team might be like four people and it might've been like 200,000, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the, in your book, you say in my agency, when we finally got around to asking each other what we wanted out of this whole, this whole enterprise and why we did it, it was incredibly awkward conversation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) more than one. (laughs) Um, what, why do you think that was? Well, so I have this whole theory about agencies in general. You know, I, I, one of the reasons I love them so much is I, I, I view it as a very egalitarian industry, right? Mm-hmm. It's not dominated by MBAs. It's not something you need to be really rich to get into. You don't need to raise venture money. In fact, it's probably not a great idea. And, you know, I say in the book, you know, these days you could probably start an agency with an iPad and a desk at a co-working space, right? Right. <laughs> so it naturally lends itself to a lot of people that are younger and hungry and eager and trying to get their feet off the ground and are just looking for any sort of start in their career. And everybody's really excited because you're turning nothing into something, Right. Mm-hmm. And nobody really thinks much about, well, later in life, when I have something, what do I want to do with it? <laughs> and that's very different for everybody, right? So some people might just want to do this for their whole life. Some people might have viewed this as a stepping stone to do something bigger or more, get into a, a startup or you know something else. I have one friend that's pumped all his money from his agency into real estate. 
And when you've got partners, your sort of mutual goal at the beginning is very aligned. You're all starting to do this to get something going that, you know, to grow something and make it cool. And then as you sort of grow and, you know, get to that goal, your life sort of, everybody sort of revisits their life goals and makes it set for the next decade or something. And, you know, the odds are pretty slim that you're all going to want exactly the same thing in life. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you haven't really talked about that along the way, you now have this thing that's worth something and you're all very passionately invested in it and you all kind of might view it very differently and where you want to take it. So that communication is so vital. And, you know, even if you're alone, I start the book very much talking about, like, what do you want to do with this? What are your goals? Where are you going in life? And it's doubly important when you have many people. Yeah, I love that part of the book. And that's it, it actually inspired me to work with our agency on sort of establishing our values and our vision and stuff like that. Because, yeah, we hadn't given much thought to that either. And it, it is and has been really valuable. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's a lot like a, like a marriage, except for you got multiple people. And you need to revisit what you want out of it pretty frequently, right? Yeah. <laughs> people grow up, people change. So you and your partners did eventually um, decide to sell the Barbarian Group. Um, was that always the plan? Well, it turned out it was for some of us and not others, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was you know, a heavy part of the conversations. And, and then, you know, when you realize some people really love what they do and they don't want to do anything else, and some people have just, their, their perception of this has turned into an asset, you know, and they're not diversified and they're looking at their life through the lens of financial planning over the course of their life, those sort of become different things. And the question starts to become, how can you fulfill the goals of as many partners as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So if one person just wants cash for this asset and another person wants to do it forever, you start to think about a place where you can, you know, sell to someone that will let the other person keep doing it forever. Right. So uh, what we did was very much a, a circumstance of trying to find the way to best fit as many partners' goals as possible. And so did some of, some of the partners stay on? Yes. Some had left before. I mean, you know, our partner, the number of partners in the Barbarian Group, I think we started at six. We were rapidly down to five. Then we added one, and then we were back to six, and then we were down to five, and then we were down to four, and then we were up to five, and then we were down to four, and then we were down to three. I think we were at three when we sold. Wow. Four. No, I think we were at four when we sold. But, you know, each one of them had different agreements with us about what would happen if it did sell down the road. So the money went to a lot more people than that, but, you know, the number of partners would change and ebb and flow through the years. Gotcha. What was your role at the Barbarian Group? So, you know, it's funny. That's kind of another example of this, right? When we started, we all kind of did similar things. We were all sort of designers and sort of developers. Some of us were stronger at design. Some of us were just stronger at, at development. Some of us, might, like, I was pretty, like, I was a decent designer and an okay coder, but very good at the production. So over time, we sort of naturally, I wouldn't say naturally, we had to really think it through and figure it out we started to specialize, right? The longer we went on, we sort of specialized. So at first, I pretty quickly realized that I had people around me that were, you know, some were better designers and some were better engineers. I might have been better than them at the other one, but we had really good people at both and where I could really add the most value was in sort of keeping the company going and keeping the projects on track and, you know, so I, I rapidly took on anything sort of project management related, financial related, things like that. So. As the company grew, that became sort of more and more responsibility. And by the end, it was, I think I had 
you know, my title the whole time was the same. I was always the COO, but you know, by the end we had maybe t 10 or 12 producers reporting to me and oh, wow. 10 or 12 account people, the entire strategy department, finance, um, all that was sort of under me at the end. Mm -hmm. And I still, the other, the other interesting thing is we, we always kept like, I picked this up in my early years when I worked at Ernst & Young, but there was always a partner that was the engagement partner, right? So, you know, there's, you got to sort of start out also everybody stepping on each other's toes. It's a partnership. The bigger you get different employees, they'll go ask mom or they'll go ask dad and try and get a different answer. So <laughs> it's really incumbent on the partners to figure out who's responsible for what and agree between themselves who's the ultimate answer, right? Right. <laughs> so with each client, we had an engagement partner that was ultimately responsible for everything on that client. Mm-hmm. And so I had, you know, I had several accounts as well where even the creative I would oversee. So, um, you know, the Kashi account, the Apple account, and uh, Ben, my partner, had GE, and Keith had Bloomberg, and Keith, Ben had CNN. And, you know, so there was also, that kept it so that I could always still sort of participate in the design and the creative as well. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, it's a good compromise when everybody sort of wants to be in charge of something, right? Right. <laughs> Um, what do you think the the Barbarian Group owes its success to? So one thing I think that is really underappreciated with our, these agencies, it's, you know, the cobbler's shoes dilemma, right? Like, nobody is, every, I talk to a lot of agencies now, and people are bad at PR. And people are bad at getting the word out about their shop, and they're bad about bragging about themselves, and it feels weird to some people to brag. And But we, Ben especially, was knew that early on that was going to be very important to us, and we were very good at it. And, you know, I, one of our first in-house hires was a PR person. Wow. And it really made a difference, you know. I, I don't know that you need to do it in-house. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. I would do it again. I would, I would hire a person in-house pretty early on if I were ever to do it again. But I don't know anyone else that's ever done that. And, all the, you know, the shops I work with today, nobody does that. But, uh, you know, you, get, you can get lazy about it. You have, you have a good roster of clients and they keep coming back and you're doing pretty well and you think it's all fine and nobody at the company is relentlessly thinking about getting the word out all the time, you know? And so having that person in-house, that was their job, you know, her, the first one, her name was Eva. She, you know, even if we got sort of in a groove and didn't start thinking that our ninth Volkswagen site was that interesting, she would make sure that other people did see it and were interested in to get the word out. And so that really, really, really kept like, not just a steady stream of new business leads, but a steady stream of interesting and great new business leads so we could really have our pick, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, Murmur Creative, we're an 11 person agency and there's no one here who's solely responsible for marketing our agencies. Yeah, we had one full time <laughs> before we were 11 people. I think we are at like seven or eight by the time wow, we had. that's amazing. Okay. So, you know, it was definitely a hit on overhead early on, but it was, it was very effective. That's cool. What, what, what was a major sort of pivot for the Barbarian Group where you turned a corner as a business in order to grow? Well, so, you know, I, I, I say this in the book and I really do think that like after the existential dilemmas about growth that some people really get hung up on, right? Like you have to decide you want to grow the company. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people now that once you've hired one person, you've made that commitment. So there is that first moment where you decide, yes, I want this to be beyond myself, right? So my wife is a freelance designer. She gets sometimes more work that she wants, but, and, you know, sometimes it probably crosses her mind. Oh, I can hire some people, 
But she knows the minute she does that, it's a very different thing. You're responsible for someone's livelihood. They're going to expect raises. They're going to expect career growth. So there's that first moment where you decide you're going to grow and be a company. And then, you know, after that, for a very long time, every penny pretty much goes to growth in some way, right? So I, I liken it to trying to move a string across a table where on the other side of the table, the string needs to be pointing in the same direction. You, and you can only use one finger. So you can move <laughs> like one end of the string all the way up and then the other end of the string all the way up. But really, you, to try and keep it even, you move little bits of the string at a time, right? So you've got some finite amount of money and you need like computers and you might need to move the office and everybody, nobody's gotten a raise in, that, in two years. And you know, you really need to do your website, which means maybe taking a little less paying work. You have all these things that you could spend the money on in growth, and you got to kind of give some of it to all of them. And that phase just stays for years. Yeah. And you just keep your head down, you just keep doing it. So there does come a point, I guess, to answer your question, where, you know, a, a sort of pivotal point is the first time you think for a moment, oh, hey, we have enough money now that we can do more than one of these things. And I know where <laughs> payroll's coming from, and we were a little a bit ahead of the game now. And, you know, it's there's this moment where it, that lets up a little bit. And I think that's always like a pretty pivotal, pivotal moment. You know, you'll look up and you'll be like, oh, my God, what just happened? I lost five years of my life and there are 50 people here and I don't even know them all very well. Um, you know, so you can really like at that point sort of stop and take stock and, and maybe you want to add a different like, you know, capability or open an office in another city or maybe you just like it the way it is and now you can relax a little bit. It really does sort of lend itself to a reevaluation at that point, you know. At what point sort of in your growth did you sort of find yourself feeling that? Mm, 80 or 90 people. 80 or 90 people. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was very fast, too. I remember one point, I'm like, I'm paying a million dollars a month to, to, like, just salaries. That's insane. <laughs> and then, like, you know, maybe another six months went by, and I'm like, okay, I don't really, I'm not stressed about paying a million dollars a month in salaries anymore. I know where it's coming from. And that's kind of amazing, right? So Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big moment, you know. And, you know, the other thing, I always, this industry changes so much that, I used to say there's like a groundbreaking change in the industry every 18 months. So, you know, in, in our period, it's everything started out as flash mini sites and then YouTube came along and viral videos came along and Facebook came along and Google and the iPhone, you know, each one of these like radically changed what clients wanted from us. And then we had to sort of decide if that was something we wanted to pursue and expand our capabilities or change what we did. And, you know, they're always happening. Those are kind of the other ones every Every 18 months, something, you know, right now it's like, do you, people care about drones? Do people care about VR? Do people, you know, uh, all the stuff that, you know, like AI stuff, like Alexa and the stuff that Google announced today, like you have to deal with each one of these new things and decide, is it something we want to pursue? Is it something we want to go whole hog into? Is it something we're just going to pretend doesn't exist because we don't like it? You know, those, yeah. those are pretty, every, every year, year and a half, you got to have one of those moments too. Yeah. We just had someone in our meeting, in a meeting yesterday asking us about drone videos. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then at one point for us, I would say all the way back in like 2003 or four, it was podcasting, right? Yeah. And it just didn't really become a thing for 10 years. Now it's a huge thing, but it <laughs> still really doesn't impact the advertising, digital advertising world that much. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, and if we had gone more all in on it, that would have been a waste of time. Right. So mm -hmm. you got to kind of make some gut calls here or there. Totally. So do you, do you think that, um, that hiring more people 
usually means more profits, that that's the way to go for an agency? Is that the easiest way to sort of grow your profits? There's two ways. And you kind of, you know, if you're going for maximization, you got to sort of pursue both. One is growth, right? Growth won't increase your profit margins. And in fact, in the short term, it might dampen them because you'll need to hire ahead of the growth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing a million dollars of work right now with seven people. You want to get to $2 million of work. You can't just sell the work and have the same seven people do it. You got to hire seven more people. And some of those you might have to hire before you get paid, right? Yeah. So in the short term, it can dampen profits. But if you say over like a two or three year stretch, your profit margins were, you know, 30% on a million dollars and three years later, they're 30% on $2 million. Well, you've doubled your profit dollar amount from 300 to 600,000, right? Mm -hmm. And so that number as it grows becomes more meaningful, right? Like you got three partners and your profits are 20%. You're doing a million dollars a year. That's $200,000. That's, you know, it's a, a salary for those three partners, but it's not great. But you doing $4 million a year and you still have 20% margins and you got $800,000 that can either go to the partners or growth. And that's, you know, that's a much more significant number, right? Right. But you didn't increase your profit margins in that whole period, which leads to the second way you can kind of grow, which is by expanding your business capabilities into more profitable areas, right? So you might be a dev shop and you're how much you can charge is really hampered by outsourcing to Eastern Europe or the Dominican Republic or something. And you're never going to be able to charge more per hour. But if you got into the UX situation and you started to be offering really good, you know, interaction design or user experience, and you can build those at a higher hourly rate and it sort of insulates yourself from competition from outsourcing. And now you can charge like $200 an hour for that new opportunity instead of $100 for engineering. The, you know, uh, the profit margin can go up on these sort of as you expand your work. That makes sense. So for us, you know, things like UX strategy, planning, media strategy, that sort of stuff was, you know, we could charge a lot of money per hour. You had to pay the person more, but not so much more that it didn't make the profit margins higher than our base design, flash and engineering work, you know. Did you ever end up hiring um too zealously did you ever end up having to like lay people off or, or sort of go um get yourself in hot water by hiring too many people oh yeah i mean you know so uh you know i'm an economics major originally uh mm -hmm. i started as a computer scientist and learned to code when i was young and went to college for it but realized i knew enough that i didn't need to go to college for it and <laughs> so i changed my major to something i could get some money out of right and um you know i mean get some value out of paying them all that money so, as you know, we started in 2001, which is a pretty dark time, right? We started at the dot-com bust. Yeah. So, people were really happy to get a job, and so our salaries were really low. And the agencies that we lived off of in the early years, we did a lot of work for agencies at the beginning. They had laid off a lot of people, but they found that the work that clients wanted didn't really go down as much as everybody thought it was going to. So like the, the excitement over the internet and the eyeballs moving to the internet was enough to offset the crash in startup valuations. Mm -hmm. And so the economic forces that through, I would say 2001 to 2008, people, whatever you want to say about internet businesses and people still used the internet more and more. Right. Right. So we, we're growing even in a down economy because just people needed to be on the internet more and people knew it was a good advertising opportunity. 
Um, so I kind of ended up fooling myself into thinking that would be infinite. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it very much wasn't with the 2008 recession. So I had just always been hiring for growth for seven years. And then when the 2008 recession happened, you know, growth stopped and people stopped paying their bills. And the bank called in its line of credit. And we ended up having to lay a bunch of people off. And we made it worse for ourselves because we were in denial for a while. And I held out for like six months paying everybody, making the company go broke without laying people off until it was so dire we had to let a lot of people go. And that was really bad. And in hindsight, I would have done it much sooner. I would have, you know, tried to mitigate it by cutting and containing costs much earlier on. But I didn't realize that the environment my company was running in had changed completely. Yeah, I guess that's something that, you know, for younger agencies that haven't actually gone through that have to sort of be aware of that another economic downturn, those marketing budgets, a lot of times are the first thing to go down. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it could be something else. Like you could be doing big website builds and the website could go away right now and you just don't have, maybe you don't have a big mobile capability. You just never doubled down on Android and iOS. And, you know, people don't spend as much on their website as they used to. You know, there are these larger trends that can hit a shop if they're too specialized and not looking at everything too. Yeah. Um, in your book, you write, I truly believe one of the great things about advertising agencies and consulting companies is that anyone can make a go of it. You don't necessarily have to need anything more than the clothes on your back, a bit of hustle and a beat up old laptop. Um, how would you sort of describe that bootstrapping time, um, in an agency's growth? <laughs> Universal and constant and all your time. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's hard to answer that, right? It is. It is pretty much what you're going to be doing for like eight years. There's, it's not like it's just uh, the few years at the beginning of the agency. You're always sort of trying to pull things together by your bootstraps. <laughs> uh, you know, like going back to that sort of profit and, and, and revenue, total revenue scale, right? If you're just one person and you get your thing, your agency to a million dollars and you have 20% profit margins, and that's a $200,000 a year salary, right? Yeah, that, that could go on for quite some time where you're quite comfortable. Now, these other larger issues you're talking about could pull that rug out from under you without any notice. But if you're not going for a big goal, you don't have a lot of partners, you could you could get out of it in, in, in a few years. Mm-hmm. But I do think, I, you know, I have a lot of issues with growth and capitalism. It's funny, I've written two books now and I'm working on my third and every one of them starts out with a big caveat about capitalism and growth. Because we're getting to a point where we have to wonder if it's perpetual. But at the scale these companies are operating, I think a lot of it is perpetual. You know, you got to save up for retirement, if nothing else. You know, you say you do this for 50 years and nothing changes and you keep 10 people. What are you going to do when you retire? You're you just going to let close it down, you know? <laughs> or are right. you going to, over the last few years, bring on partners and then you got other people and then they're younger and they care about growth and you're taking all the profits and they don't own as much as so they're going to want growth. I think there's a lot of reasons to make it that it's pretty necessary to continue growing. That mm-hmm. growth gets easier as you get bigger and you have more resources, but I don't. A lot of companies, I don't see it going away. And if you really don't want to go away, I'd question you why you are not staying freelance. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we're we're sort of in that bootstrapping stage. You know, next year is going to be the first year we offer health insurance to everybody. Um, we're still probably not as like competitive with salaries as other agencies. But yeah, I, I mean, I feel like there's, you know, there is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. We do feel a little bit more secure every year. We don't have, we don't have three months of uh, payroll in the bank yet, but. We, no one ever has three months of payroll in the bank. 
<laughs> it's funny when I was writing the book, my editor was like, "You're really stressing this three months. How did did you ever have three months?" I was like, "Oh God, no." <laughs> She's like, "So why are you telling them all to do something you never did?" I'm like, "All right, that's a fair point." <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, and that's the other thing, right? You might be comfortable making this two hundred thousand dollars a year profit, but everybody that works there is going to want some growth. They're going to want to see like their salaries be competitive. They're They'll give you the benefit of the doubt for a few years, but they're not going to want to. They're not going to work for you forever at a below market rate with no benefits. So that right. that means growth. You yeah. have turnover, so that means growth. You got to like pay the new people more market rates, and you know. I just think it does get easier, but it doesn't go away. I mentioned before. I love at the beginning of the book where you're talking about vision and culture, and you write before you get started running your business out in the cold world. You need to know what your company stands for. Um, I imagine that a lot of agencies might have a hard time saying that in any succinct kind of way. Why do you think that's important? So, yeah, I mean, the reason why I think it's hard is what we said before, right? A lot of these people see an opportunity in the world and they are hustlers and they go for it and they're just trying to make something out of nothing. And they're, you know, I think I say in another place, you know, these things are like little infants, you know, struggling to stay alive. And, you know, when, when survival is so high and you're, your list of priorities, it's hard to think beyond that, right? Uh, like a baby doesn't think, why am I here? A baby thinks, <laughs> food! So, <laughs> so we, what happens is we have these shops that like, we, we struggled to get going that we didn't really ever figure out what it was about them, that, that what we're doing or what makes it special, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that's true for some freelancers, even in their chosen craft, whether you're an engineer or a, a designer or a writer, like what is it that you write or, or design or, or develop and what, what's different about you? Are you fast? Are you cheap? Are you very good? You know, my best friend is an engineer and his greatest thing is he can code in anything and he can have a real world human conversation with somebody like you and I are having and turn it into code without a million layers in between of like functional specs and this and that, right? Mm -hmm. He's very intuitive. He's like an intuitive coder and that's his thing. And, and some people really appreciate that. But if you don't know what it is, it's A, it's very hard to market yourself and B, you start taking jobs that don't fit with that. And I think, but more to the point, C, every decision is harder. Like who to hire next is harder, where the office should be is harder, what kind of clients you want is harder, whether this RFP is worth pursuing is harder, because you don't have like a decision-making paradigm. Yeah. That, I mean, since we started sort of defining our vision, um, we've had a lot easier time making business decisions. It's kind of remarkable because when we first did it, it was like, okay, now we did it. It's down on paper. What does it mean? And then immediately we started realizing that we could apply it to decisions yeah, that we're making. Yeah. yeah, there's a moment there where you think this is like an academic exercise, and that's fine. Just put it in a drawer at that point because it will be less than three days before some question <laughs> comes up and you're like, oh, yeah, I should point to that document. You know what I mean? <laughs> and we didn't write ours down. So there's another anecdote in the book where I woke up one day, I think we were like 70 people, and I came out of the office, and I was like, what are you working on? And this guy's like, I'm writing fake reviews for this book on a, a forum. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible. And like, how was he supposed to know, right? The, like the account person was new and he was new and they didn't need to talk to the tech team. And like, so nobody knew that that was just against our principles. Right. You know? And so then I instituted this process where I just literally, when somebody got hired, I sat down with every one of them and I said, we don't do bad stuff. If you ever feel like you're doing something that makes you feel immoral, 
come to me and look at me, I'm telling you. So if you do it later and you didn't come to me, it's on you now, you know, <laughs> and that helped a lot. I just stayed in our visions of these people right when we hired them so that everybody was making decisions against the same sort of principles. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, a, that's another thing we got to work on is some way to prepare employees when they come here to uh, understand what our vision is. Yeah, and for me, it was just a conversation. And that was year seven. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> Before I figured that one out. You know? <laughs> um, another thing you say in your book is uh, that timesheets are a joke. They are an outright lie. What is it that, or how do you get by without timekeeping? What's, what's wrong with timekeeping? Okay, so there are two things, I think, there are two ways to look at what's wrong with timekeeping, right? And the, the most common pushback I get these days is that technology can fix it. So I think that technology can help with one of the two, but not the other, and I'll sort of walk you through. Mm-hmm. Number one is that almost all time is billed in hourly increments, and you are not paying your employees hourly. So that's kind of, I would say, 90% of the time, that's the situation. So at the core of the whole process is a lie, right? Now, that's not the case if you're on an agile development team-based job and they're hiring weekly. You could theoretically then be paying and tracking and billing in the same increments as the timesheet. But typically, at the core of the timesheet issue is just a fundamental lie. Like, you don't pay your clients, your, your employees hourly, so why is the timesheet hourly? Mm-hmm. And so, by necessity, there will always be some point in the process where that lie needs to be reconciled, and there will be some degree of lack of accuracy because of it, right? So, that's just important to remember that, like, most of the time, timesheets are just born in sin, you know? <laughs> and then, secondly, like, people hate doing them, and people lie on them, and they don't pay that much attention to their time, and they don't track it very closely. And people, especially when you get into the creative world, it's very hard to capture time when you're walking down the street thinking about all your projects, right? Right. So whatever they put on the sheet is almost guaranteed to not be accurate. Right. Now, obviously, to some extent, there are tools now that can mitigate that part of it a little bit in the sense that there's these tools that look at what apps you're in and what documents you have open. And in certain situations, this second bucket can be mitigated with technology. But Mm -hmm. by and large, you cannot mitigate it completely. Right. So right off the bat, the timesheets are just inaccurate and basically lies for two reasons that are almost always going to be there. One, it's impossible to track creative time when you're thinking about stuff. Two people lie, so there's that just sort of reporting inaccuracy, and then there's the inaccuracy around the fact that you're translating hours to weeks when you don't pay people that way. And yeah. so if somebody works all weekend to catch up and you're still paying them the same rep amount, why does the number on the timesheet change? Yeah. So I just they bother me, and there are easier ways to do it. We've had trouble tracking time. We, we sort of do it in a way now. We don't actually have a clock running, but we'll have people account for what they worked on at the end of the day, and we sort of use that as a, as a measuring stick. But what is a better way to... So like I'm, a better word. I'm, I'm definitely like a little uh, obsessive and, and logical about this stuff. So even what you just said to me is like you glossing over lies, right? You said we <laughs> sort of track it. We use it as a measuring stick. Like you've just accommodated inaccuracy into your process and accepted it, which is fine if you never forget that. But what people tend to do is then they just pre- they forget that that inaccuracy was ever there and they treat it as some sort of gospel and it's just not, right? Right. So that is an important point. But I think that like the other big thing, you know, companies do a lot of different work and there are different solutions for this that are more applicable to different types of companies. But 
if you're a software development company, we have the agile methodologies now that are very team-based. And it's very easy to just make sure your team is billed for in the same increments that you pay them, i.e. weekly or monthly versus hourly, right? Mm -hmm. That is a very simple way. If you got a team of five people and they're working on the same project for, and you get paid monthly and that's all they work on, there's no need for timesheets at all, you know? Um, and then there are other ways for the other stuff. So what we would do is we would have a person that kept an eye on what everybody worked on, and we would estimate out the job. We build, you know, a lot of people do this. It's not, they estimate the job is four people at two weeks, and so the job equals $60,000, and then they just bid flat at $60,000, right? Mm -hmm. So all I had to do was make sure that only four people worked on that job for two weeks, and it didn't sneak in to get a fifth person on it. One of the people wasn't just doing nothing, and then I don't care how much they worked on it because I got paid for their time, right? right. Mm -hmm. And if I had a person on two jobs, then the resource manager would keep an eye on both jobs. And it's very hard for that to be faked because one job will suffer if the other job gets too bad. So the resource manager will notice that. So all we had was a form at the end of the project was like, what'd you say this was going to be? Well, I said it was two full-time people and two half-time people for five weeks. What did it turn out to be? Two full, you know, three full-time people and two half-time people for three weeks. That's off, right? Yes. The resource manager says, yes, it was off. The producer, like, they both sign it. It's like, and then it says, why was it off? You look into the whys. Was it, maybe it was billed, in which case it's fine. If it wasn't billed, you fix that problem. But you can catch it on a one-page sort of actualization sheet at the end of the job. You mentioned in the book um, dealing with adjusters, uh, I believe. Sort of like, you can't charge this much for a developer or this much for a designer. Oh, procurement, yeah. Oh, procurement, sorry. <laughs> what I call it? Yeah, I, I thought you said jesters, but I think you said adjusters. Yeah, I think it said adjusters, yeah. Procurers. <laughs> yeah, procurement departments. I mean, does that even get down to like whether it's a senior employee or a junior employee? And, and yes. did you actually track that stuff? Yes. Procurement, there's a couple things. As you get bigger, you will eventually run into procurement. And if you Google the word, you'll see there are whole conferences on it. And the trend in this stuff is that it is increasing increasingly used by companies for services, right? So historically, procurement departments are around buying 10,000 office chairs and 50,000 like pens or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they, they've always had a hard time with service-based industries like ad agencies or their lawyers or their accountants, right? But the, the corporate trends over the last decade have increasingly brought procurement into what we do. So there's two forces that make it more likely that eventually you're going to hit a procurement department. You're growing, so your clients are getting bigger. So, uh, and then two, procurement's just becoming more of a thing everywhere, right? Okay. So, you know, every company, it's worth researching, and I give an overview in the book, but like the sort of school of thought in companies around procurement for service-based company for services and how they handle it, there's a couple different ways these companies handle it, right? Some of them make specialized procurement departments within the marketing department or the, the, the tech department that deal with procurement for services that understand it's a little bit different, right? In those situations, procurement's pretty cool and it's not much of a problem. They understand that like, your flash guys might be the, I shouldn't use flash as an example anymore. <laughs> you know, your designers are better than the graphic designer they can get off of the internet. And so they understand that and procurement's generally not that bad. Mm -hmm. uh, other companies believe in centralized procurement. So if you're working with this big company and you've got a deal going on with the marketing department to design a brochure or a website or something, and then they're like, great, we love all this. 
Now you just have to go through procurement, and then you go to procurement. They might not even know each other. They might not know anything about the job. They might not know anything about the field of graphic design. You know, it's a very different process. And then uh, that's I sort of outline a lot of that. There's things you can do to get through that process better, right? A lot of times we would have a, client, a conversation with our client up front. Okay, we're going to go through procurement. What do we need to do? Is this procurement, do they report to you? Are they in your department? Are they not in your department? Uh, what should we say? You know, your client is having this problem all the time, and they'll give you some guidance on how to get through procurement. Mm-hmm. And that can influence how you handle it, right? If your client's the CMO and procurement is not in the marketing department, they don't, that CMO is not their boss and they won't be as scared of them, right? Whereas if procurement is in the, uh, in the marketing department and the person you're talking to is boss reports to the, the, your client, then like, they're, they're going to be more scared to say they messed up the job and you're not going to work with them because they have to tell their boss who has to tell their boss that the person they want they can't have. Nobody wants to do that, right? So you got to like get into the psychology of it a little bit. So like if someone, so you kind of work backwards, do you like, okay, this is going to be a $300,000 project and they say, okay, well, you need to go through procurement and then you try to figure out exactly how that $300,000 is um, distributed amongst your employees in terms of work or do you, are you just set up a system so you know exactly yeah, so, you know, that begs a larger question about how you run your agency. There, <laughs> basically, you can get away with making up a dollar figure for a while, but several forces, amongst them procurement, will, over time, make your company get more accurate in its estimating, right? Mm-hmm. So, eventually, we had a situation where we had a, a pricing worksheet that you could put in how many hours or weeks for each person that was on the job, and it would give an estimate, and it would also output a sort of nice little table that we would use if we had to for procurement. And it would say account manager four weeks, designer three weeks, senior designer two weeks. You know, we still have tried to avoid getting into hourly, but we would have a team breakdown in about how many resources. A lot of times we do it in full-time equivalents. So half of a full-time equivalent for two weeks, you know. Um, And then we would use that as defense in procurement. Gotcha. But yeah, once you get to a formalized procurement department, it's pretty hard to just say, it's $300,000 and we're not going to tell you why. <laughs> and the other thing is the bigger the number is, right? You could probably say it's $20,000 and we're not going to tell you why. But you can't say it's a million dollars and we're not going to tell you right. why. The right. more expensive your jobs get, the more like people at the client are going to like tear it apart and look at it. Yeah. But I will say the other thing about procurement is you're the only person, and never forget this, you're the only person in that conversation that has any personal investment in this, right? Mm-hmm. Like a procurement person's job is... Their, their, you know, their their job review is based on the percentage they saved over a portfolio of procurement projects, right? So they're they're talking to you, they're talking to a hundred other people, and when their job review comes along, they're going to look at how much the original estimates came in and how much they saved, and how, you know that's going to be what they judge on. They're not going to be judged on any one job. They're going to be judged if they lose the job, and they don't really care that much because the more difficult you are, they'll make it up on somebody that's left less difficult. <laughs> right. And you're right. the only person here with a personal like stake in the matter. So I never outsourced. I never gave procurement to my CFO or anybody else. I would do it, and I would just say on the phone like. The money we're talking about here goes into my my belly and my children's education and this and that. And you can't say the same. And you had the moral high ground and you could be a little bit more Brinksman-like than they could, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like, got to get into the psychology of the procurement officer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a boring topic, but it, you know, once you have your basics around it, you can you can do it in a way that you can get through quicker. You can get through with higher numbers. It's, it's mm -hmm. worth like you know thinking a little bit about. It. No, no. I mean, I, I found it really interesting, and we haven't had to do it yet, but now I know it exists. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, another thing you say in your book is that um, you you try to when you do when you bid you try to give one number rather than um, I'm breaking it up into sort of an itemized list. Yeah, is that is that sort of in your opinion the best way to go when sort of bidding on a project? Yeah, I mean, so I make a distinction here between how you present and how you calculate. Right, mm -hmm. it, long before that we stopped just throwing out a number and making it up. Right, mm -hmm. but even once we had a very accurate method of making the number, we still always tried to just sell it on the number. Mm -hmm. And that would only work like 5-10% of the time, but you're always better in that situation because if you ended up needing fewer people, you could just make the team smaller and they're never going to notice, things like that. It gives you a lot more flexibility, right? Um, but then if they want if they want additional detail and you can't provide it very quickly, they can tell that you're just making it up. Right. So if right. they wanted more additional detail right away, I would just, we had a, like a client facing version that didn't show all the information, but showed like a, you know, at least the team size and about how much they worked on it each month. And we could pass that along. And then if they needed even more, we would consider whether we would give them more or not. So it was sort of like a progressively revealing more information only to those that insisted upon it. You know? Yeah, that's that's kind of what we're thinking about doing right now because we list out, we usually give sort of a laundry list of all of our services and their costs to our clients. And we're thinking about sort of giving them a list of all the services, but sort of a single number um, that represents everything or perhaps even giving them like a couple different package options rather than giving them the yeah. individual price of everything. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I would do it in terms of, or I did do it. I'm not giving advice, but what we did was in terms of percents of full-time employees, right? Mm -hmm. So 100% full-time, 50% full-time because it gave, I was a stickler for not doing hours because I don't think they're real. <laughs> and it's still, you know, it tacitly says essentially if it says 75 or anything less than 100, that person is working on something else. So they can't catch you later finding out that Jane is working on another project. You're like, well, I told you you're only getting 75%. <laughs> um, and honestly, it's important to know this is all very distinct from specs and capability, like the project, what you're building for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in an agile development job and you're deciding each sprint what you're all working on, fine. But if it's a normal project with a scope, we were very accurate about scope because the other thing you want to make sure is if they if scope is increased, you can go back and point to the document and say you need to pay more. Right. Right. Yeah. Scope creep is the enemy of all agencies. Right. So we're talking purely here on how you present the numbers, not the not the functionality. You know? Right. Well, great. Thanks so much for uh, joining me once again, even though our uh, our listeners only get to hear the second interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, and thanks for making the questions a little different so I didn't get bored the second time. No, of course. Of course. <laughs> Um, so I always ask our, uh, interviewees to, uh, provide three takeaways, um, for you, it would be advice to other people who are running, growing, starting, um, an agency. Yeah. Well, I mean, number one is know why you're doing it, right? Have a vision, have that vision sort of like influence everything. Uh, number two is make sure that you your partners are in line with that and you all know what you want to get out of it over time and repeatedly check in on that. Mm -hmm. And then number three, don't sell short your own PR and marketing. People are really bad about that. Yeah. The more, more incoming leads you have, the more flexibility you have, the more, uh, opportunities you have, you know, that's great. That's great advice. Cool. 
Thanks so much um, for joining me. And I encourage everyone to check out your book, um, which is called Agency by Rick Webb. And uh, the subtitle is Starting a Creative Firm in the Age of Digital Marketing. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much. You've been listening to the Creative Agency Podcast with your host, Chris Bolton. When he's not podcasting or being a dad, he's the Digital Strategy Director at Murmur Creative in Portland, Oregon. Be sure to visit us online at creativeagencypodcast.com.